0: Well, this morning is our seventh study in our series, Living Church. And uh, you all know by now that this series is based on the words that we find in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. The, The risen Lord speaks to the church in Sardis and says to them, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive but are dead. And Dan and I in recent weeks have said that it's possible to have a great reputation as a church, but the most important thing of all is not our reputation before other people, um, but what God thinks of us, that we live our lives before an audience of one. And I think that uh, our reputation in Tamworth um, is pretty good. Uh, many people see uh, Tamworth Helium Church as a, quite a vibrant church with a social conscience and a community impact, and that's great. I'm happy about that, but the most important thing of all is what the Lord thinks of us, his opinion, uh, not so much what people say about us. And in recent weeks, we've uh, asked the question, what makes a church alive or living? And uh, recently, we've looked at what a living church looks at uh, looks like rather, in terms of uh, its worship, its community, its discipleship it's evangelism, and it's ministry. And our subject this morning is generosity. A living church is a generous church. And when I speak of church, obviously I'm not speaking of some hierarchical organization, or nor am I speaking of a building, bricks and mortar. I am speaking of people. Church is people. So a living church is made up of lots of people, people who are known for their generosity of spirit. And in many respects this morning, I recognise that I am preaching to the converted because I think that you are amongst the most generous people I have ever encountered in my life. But let's start with a definition of generosity. Generosity is defined as the act of giving or sharing more than is necessary or expected. So it's not about just doing the bare minimum, it's about going the second mile, it's about being open-handed, not tight-fisted, it's about being big-hearted, not narrow-minded, it's about being magnanimous, not mean or miserly. And we're going to be thinking this morning of generosity and what that means. And for many people, when they hear the word generosity, they think, well, Steve's going to give another sermon on money. Not that I do that very often anyway. Well, that's only partly right, because obviously generosity does include what we do with our finances and our resources, but it's much, much larger than that. You know, we've been called to be generous with our time and with our talents, and also generous in our, with our attitudes to other people. So whenever we speak of generosity, we need to start with God. It is God who defines generosity. God is the epitome of generosity. He is generous to the core. God has given us far more than we could ever earn or deserve or expect. He simply loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, writes Paul. And John writes in his letter, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I love that word, lavished, don't you? It speaks of superabundance, being showered in blessing, being smothered in grace, being overwhelmed with God's mercy. And God's God's generosity is nowhere better observed than in the life of Jesus. And that verse that we all love quoting, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The most astonishingly generous gift that has ever been given to mankind. God is a lavishly generous God a God who gave us Jesus, and as Christians, we are called to reflect the generosity of God and to demonstrate the unconditional love of God to all people, regardless of their gender, their marital status, their race, their ethnicity, their religion, their age, their sexual orientation, or their social status. Jesus gives us a wonderful description of what Father God is like. Uh, in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 11 and he says which of you fathers if your son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then though you are evil and I suppose compared to God we are all evil aren't we how and uh, know how to give good gifts to your children how much more underline those words will your father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So basically, think of the very best example you know of a good human father. Multiply that by a thousand, and you're still not anywhere close in coming to what God is like and the kind of heavenly father that he is. You know, we often sing in our church, don't we, that he's a good, good father. It's who he is. And if our understanding of Father God and Jesus Christ is outrageous love, and we have the Spirit of Christ living in our hearts, then we will begin to reflect the character of God and learn to respond to others with that same love. That we will begin to see others in the way that God sees them. That all people everywhere have been made in the image of God. And that all people everywhere are loved unconditionally by Him. That's what keeps me going. That knowledge that everybody that I'm going to meet this week is loved unconditionally by God. Wow! You know, you hear this on a Sunday and sometimes we sing it, but you know, let that drop from there to there. It will affect everything for you. And God calls us to be generous in many ways. And three points I'm going to just mention this morning and to to move through. God encourages us to be generous with our finances and resources Generous with our time and also generous with our attitudes. First of all, generous with our finances. Generosity has been the hallmark of the church since the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. And Luke provides us uh, in Acts with a wonderful insight into the earliest church in Jerusalem. And we've, I know, looked at this church quite a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, just after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And we read in Acts chapter 2, and we've come across this verse quite uh, a lot there in the last couple of weeks. Uh, First of all, Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And then a couple of chapters further on, chapter 4, verse 34, there was no needy persons among them, For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, this is an incredible picture of the earliest church. Imagine being a part of this church. Um, In those days, there was no welfare state. So you could not go and get tax credits, or there were no housing benefits and no child benefit. And no disability living allowance, and no income support, and no, inca- no incapacity benefit, no job seekers allowance, none of the above. And therefore, that's where the church came in and practiced what it preached. Um, you know, if you were unable in those days to work through ill health, or you couldn't get a job, or maybe the breadwinner of your family uh, died, then there was every possibility, actually that your family would go hungry. These were harsh days. And the early church in Jerusalem overflowed with a spirit of generosity. And they continued where they started for some years later when Paul, who is now a Christian, formerly Saul of Tarsus, this guy who was an arch critic of the Christian church, he becomes a Christian. And Saint Paul is called to do this great work Uh, in the Gentile lands, that's the non-Jewish lands. But first of all, he visits the apostles, the sent ones, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, James, Peter, and John. And their spirit of generosity abounded as well. And Paul records the meeting that he had with them sometime later when he writes his letter to Galatians. And he tells us that he and his friend Barnabas, they were commissioned by these leaders of the Jerusalem church to go in to the Roman Empire and pass on the good news of Jesus. And that uh, they were to do that and Peter was to be the apostle to the Jews, but there was one proviso. I'm not sure if you can remember what that one proviso was. They they were sent out, as they were commissioned, what they had to do. Well, in Galatians 2 verse 10 it says this, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor and then Paul adds the very thing I was eager to do you see they're all singing from the same song sheet and they all wanted to minister to others out of a a generous heart and Paul was true to his uh, his word and during his travels he encouraged uh, generosity the spirit of generosity in all the churches that he founded through the ancient uh, world and um, um, he took up a gift actually for the poverty-stricken believers in Jerusalem who had gone through famine, gone through persecution. And I find this absolutely ironic because the early apostles, the early leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, James um, and, and, and John, they were the ones who actually commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out and to remember the poor. But now, some years later, following a famine, they themselves were the poor that were being remembered and helped. It's a a wonderful irony there, isn't it? And then we come across a really interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul tries to stimulate the faith of Christians in the city of Corinth to dig a little bit deeper in their pockets and to give well. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this because Dan and I spent a lot of time in 2 Corinthians last summer when we went through all of these in far more detail than I'm going to mention this morning. But what Paul does to encourage the giving of this church in Corinth is that he holds up an example. Exhibit A. Well, what, who or what was exhibit A? Exhibit A were the, were the Macedonian Christians. And this is what we find. Just uh, put those words up there on screen for you. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us also. Let me just highlight a number of words very quickly. That these uh, Macedonian Christians, this exhibit A that Paul is holding up to the Corinthians, uh, were extremely poor. It's a funny thing really, when the Bible provides examples of generosity, it normally does it by highlighting poor people. For example, remember that widow that Jesus commented on, she gave all that she had, just two small copper coins that she put into the, the treasury. And then there was the ex-prostitute in Luke chapter 7 who broke her alabaster jar of very expensive perfume worth a year's wages. And uh, she came and pu- pulled that perfume over Jesus as an act of worship. Again, she was certainly not a high society uh, person with loads of money. She was the underclass. And now you have these Macedonian Christians as well. It was out of their extreme poverty that uh, they were being praised for their gener- generosity. And I would say to you this morning, you don't need to be rich to be generous, okay? You don't. I'm often hearing how so many of you quietly and without fuss and fanfare show great uh, generosity through the ministry of casseroles. You didn't know that was a ministry in the New Testament, did you? Ministry of casseroles you know those who have experienced perhaps illness or bereavement or difficulty in one way or another are very often the blessed recipients of casseroles when maybe the last thing that you want to do in those times is cook for yourself creative generosity and many others um, use your homes or your cars and your resources to bless other people in some way paul also mentions that it's overflowing joy speaks of their overflowing joy despite their severe trial and their extreme poverty here these were happy people why were they happy when everything was going against them they were happy because they were not dependent on their circumstances their joy came in came from the inside their joy came from knowing and loving and walking in relationship with Jesus Christ having Jesus in their hearts And when you have Jesus in your heart, I think your default position is to be generous. And I would even say, and go as far as to say, that generosity of spirit is actually evidence that a person has come to faith. Generosity of spirit is evidence that a person has come to faith. Now I'm not saying for one moment here, and please don't get me wrong, that a person needs to be a Christian to be generous. I'm not saying that. That isn't correct because I know of many people who are not Christians, who are generous. But what I am saying is that to be an ungenerous Christian is actually a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. Because if that person is a Christian at all, I would suggest that that person has not even begun to understand the generosity of God to them. And you see, when we understand something of God's generosity to us, what God has done for us, how generous he has been to us. It changes everything. It changes the way that we look at ourselves, and changes the way that we look at the world, and changes how we look at uh, the, the pounds in our bank account. And That's a great challenge, I would say. Those that, there are many, and there are many people who think that in order to be happy, all they need is a little bit more money. <laughs> but true happiness comes in being in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They also gave as much as they were able, there was no holding back. They were not miserly and mean, but they were overflowing and generous. Isn't it interesting that the the words miserable and misery are extensions of the word miser? It's very interesting that. I wonder why that is. I don't suppose for a moment it's a, it's a coincidence. Generous people are blessed people, are happy people. Proverbs eleven twenty five, 25, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. That's a great promise. And the Macedonian Christians, they gave even beyond their ability, probably went without themselves in order to serve their fellow believers. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren, the pastor of the Saddleback uh, uh, Church in the States, he says this, Every time I'm generous, it makes God smile. It brings happiness to the heart of God. Every time I'm generous, God goes, that's my boy, that's my girl. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. God loves it. Those of you who are parents are happy when your kids learn to share, of course. Does it bring you pleasure when you see your children being generous? Of course it does. And God is the same with you. It makes God smile when you are generous. That's a nice thought, isn't it? And again, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But it's not just finances and um, our resources that we can be generous with and what God encourages us to be generous with. Also, we can be generous with our time. Now, sometimes it's easier to part with your money than it is to be generous with your time. And that's often uh, a challenge to uh, young parents, to parents of young families, that sometimes it, the danger is that you can substitute uh, the time that you need to spend with your children with maybe gifts or electronic gadgets or treats. Um, I think there's a whole sermon in itself on, on, on that subject. But there are many examples of Jesus in the New Testament spending time with people, people that society often rejected, people who were despised by the religious leaders of the day. For example, the Pharisees, they had a real problem, grip problem, believing that, Jesus, that God loves all people. And they were constantly agitated with Jesus when they see Jesus mixing with the wrong sorts of people, the irreligious people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the half-breed Samaritans and the like. And they were saying, well, how can this guy be from God if he associates with such people as this? In Luke chapter 19, we have a a great story of Jesus uh, entering into Jericho. And there he looks up into a sycamore tree and he sees uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector for the Romans, a man who was hated by his own people, regarded as a traitor and, and a thief. And the tax collectors dishonestly, in those days, uh, uh, lined their own pockets. But instead of that, on that afternoon of Jesus taking the opportunity to speak to the great crowd that had come before him, he singles out this one rogue and tells him that he wants to stay at his house. Now as you can imagine, the whole crowd had turned up to see uh, Jesus and to listen to him. They were not well blessed by that. You know, uh, certainly when it was this man of all men. It says in verse 7 of chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, all the people began to see this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. (coughs) What are you playing at Jesus? Don't you know who this guy is? He, he's a tax collector, he's an enemy, he's not a friend, he's a traitor, he's a thief. But Jesus spoke to him and focused all of his attention and time on this one small, lonely, self-centered man. And Jesus' generosity in time to someone that no one else probably in the town bothered with um, was, was, was just quite amazing what happened. You know, I don't want you to get me wrong here. Zacchaeus was not a nice man. By his own admission, he cheated and defrauded his own people. He lived a selfish life. He, he lived on the profits of crime. And yet, the encounter that he had with Jesus changed his life. Listen to the way that uh, Luke tells the story there. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And I would say to you that generosity begets generosity. And that encounter with this sad, lonely little man changed his life forever because Jesus comes up to him and treats him as a human being. He was a lost soul, a man who was despised and rejected in society, but he was also someone who was loved by God. And I am so incredibly privileged, I really am, to be a part of a church family that reaches out to the lost, the least and the lonely, to those who are rejected by society, such as the homeless to those who are marginalized in society, such as the mentally incapable, and the vulnerable, such as those who require a helping hand to put food on their tables, and also the isolated and the lonely, like the elderly people who have no social contact with others throughout the week. And as you are generous with your time, and so many of you are, the Lord, I believe, looks down from heaven and smiles and said, that's my son, that's my daughter, like father or like child and Jesus gave Zacchaeus the the precious gift of his time. The result was that he was a changed man and Zacchaeus then promised half his possessions to the poor and if he had uh, robbed anyone of anything he would pay back them four times as much indicating that the grace of God was working in his life. You see in our world, in our community there are many people who are isolated from social interaction with friends and family, and the most precious thing that we can often give them is our time. really is. Okay, thirdly, generous with our attitudes. I think that the curse of um, Western Christianity has been respectability. The curse of Western Christianity has been respectability. That kind of air of moral superiority that some Christians have over, over unbelievers. It's like us and them, ah, okay. saints and sinners. Mark Twain once said that uh, they were good people in the worst sense of the word. and well, I think that's a, that's a good phrase, isn't it? And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were just like that. They were good people, but in the worst sense of the word. They were good people in the sense that they were living morally ethical lives, but they weren't omitting much grace at all. They were selfish, they were self-centred. Unlike Jesus, they were quick to point a finger at others. Unlike Jesus, they were quick to condemn. Unlike Jesus, they wanted to judge other people and they saw a person's problems, but they were very, very slow in to see a person's potential. And Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6 are so relevant 2,000 years on. He says, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I love reading in different uh, translations as well. There's a great translation in the message for this particular passage. I'll put it up on screen for you. Don't pick a, a pick on people. Jump on their failures. criticize their faults unless, of course, he wants the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. I'm just going to pick up uh, again a few statements in those verses there in Luke chapter 6. Do not judge and you will not be judged. I don't know, have you ever judged people by the way that they look? (coughs) If we're honest, my guess is that at some time or other throughout our lives we've all done that. But the religious leaders of the day, of Jesus' day, were most definitely full of judgment, and Jesus was full of grace. They wrote people off. Jesus accepted them as they were. They fled away from the religious leaders, but they came to Jesus. And sadly, religious people have often been accused of not reflecting the generosity of Jesus. In the mid 19th century, and you probably know this story, it's a story of uh, William and Catherine Booth, they brought into their church in East, parts, East London many ragged people, people with shabby clothes, people who were unkempt, untidy appearance. And uh, the, the rather well-to-do, well-dressed people of their church in East London who regarded themselves as a little bit too high and mighty, a bit too good for these people who were William and Catherine Booth's friends. First of all, distance themselves from where the others were sitting. And then after that, They complained about these ragged people coming into their church. Well, William and Catherine Booth left that church with all of their ragged friends and they set up what is known today as the Salvation Army. I'm sure you've all heard of that little girl's prayer when she prayed, Lord, make the bad people good and make the good people nice. You see, more people have been brought into church by the kindness of true Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven away from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. That's true. Do not condemn and you will not, not be condemned. Now, Jesus could have condemned many people. He could have condemned Peter. You know, Peter was the brash one, wasn't he? He was the one who said, if all the others disown you, I'm not going to disown you, I'll be there to the end, I'm prepared to die for you. And then we know that Peter disowned Jesus three times. Did Jesus condemn him? No. Jesus provided a way back for him to be restored and reinstated. Jesus could have condemned the woman woman that was brought to him caught red-handed in the act of adultery, but Jesus replied to her, Neither do I condemn you. Leave now your life of sin. Jesus could have condemned the Samaritan woman for her gross immorality, but rather he says to her in so many words, I see that you're thirsty. And then Jesus went to tell her that the water that she was drinking could never satisfy, but he had a water which would... Quench your thirst forever, forgive, and you will be forgiven. The greatest example of forgiveness this world has ever known is the example of Jesus on the cross being put there by wicked men and he prayed that prayer, Father, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. And that is the gold standard of Christian forgiveness. I just want to, just for a few moments, show you a short video of a man named Daryl and some of you have been on the Alpha course you would have uh, seen this and many other great stories but I just want you to watch this and uh, be inspired by it for a few minutes thank you would you say that uh, Daryl is a trophy of God's grace God has turned his life around transformed him and as they say you never judge a book by its cover I think it's very, very important to do that. Uh, Steve Chalk in his uh, excellent book entitled Intelligent Church, he tells a story of um, a sculptor from Florence by the name of, uh, I'm trying, Augustino di Antonio. And uh, he worked uh, diligently and unsuccessfully on a large piece of marble for many months, eventually he gave it up and uh, he simply couldn't do anything with the stone. Other sculptors came along and they tried to do something with the marble as well and ultimately uh, couldn't craft anything of beauty from it. So the, the, the stone was discarded, it was put on a rubbish heap for 40 years and that seemingly worthless piece of rock was to become one of the world's f- most famous pieces of Renaissance art. Michelangelo's wonderful David. I'm just um, saving the blushes of David there as well. But after its completion, Michelangelo was often told how beautiful his work of art was. And his standard reply was both simple and humble. He said, all he had done was to reveal the beauty that was already hidden deep inside the marble. What a great answer. All he had done was to reveal the beauty that was hidden inside the marble. (coughs) And the task of a generous church is to reveal the beauty that is present in the lives of everyone we meet. The Daryls of this world and many like him. To have a generous attitude to people who might not appear to be beautiful on the either the inside or the outside, people who are messed up, people perhaps who have been judged and criticized all of their lives, those in society who are regarded as sinners but they are loved unconditionally by God. Many of you will know the author Stephen King, author of 49 suspense horror novels. He has sold over 350 million copies And some of his novels have been turned into blockbuster films such as The Shining and The Shawshank Redemption. In 1999, he was walking along a country road in Maine and uh, it was at night and a a, a van hit him, knocked him into a ditch. His legs were so badly crushed that uh, doctors feared that they would need to amputate them. But he managed to pull through and the accident had a major impact upon his life. Uh, What you might know not know about Stephen King is that he is an outspoken advocate for generosity He himself gives away about four million dollars every year to various good causes And in a speech that he gave to graduates in one American college. He said this. I'll just read some of this to you I found out what you can't take it with you means I found out while I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm I had <coughs> a MasterCard in my wallet but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair no one accepts MasterCard we all know that life is short-lived but on that particular day and in the months that followed I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke, we may be dressed up when we go out but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett is going out broke, Bill Gates is going out broke, Tom Hanks is going out broke, Steve King broke not a crying dime. All the money you can earn, all the stocks you can buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. Wow. That's a, another angle there on generosity, isn't it? Because we think of generosity giving of stuff, but making our lives one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. We have the power to help, the power to change. And why should we refuse? Because we're gonna take it with us. (laughs) Yeah. Right now, we have the power to do great good for others. So I ask you to begin giving and continue as you began. I think you'll find in the end that you got far more than you ever had and did more good than you ever dreamed. (coughs) I don't believe he's a Christian, but those words are still very, very powerful. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. Wow, how this world, how our communities would change if we all took that attitude, or from now on, from this moment on, we are going to live our lives with that in mind. Having that concept that our lives are a gift to others, wherever we see them, whatever needs they might have, wherever we meet people day by day. Time's gone, sorry. Let me finish. Generous churches. Generous churches see the good in others and respond with kindness, compassion, and open-handedness, but not with judgment and condemnation. Generous churches do not look down on others as sinners, but reach across to people as fellow strugglers on life's journey. Generous churches see a person's potential before they see a person's problems. Generous churches will be open-handed rather than tight-fisted, open-hearted rather than small-minded. Generous churches see themselves as beggars showing other beggars where to find food. Generous churches are full of people who are willing to see the best in others, not the worst. People who are slow to take offense but are quick to forgive. Generous churches, see other people as made in the image of God and help people to belong. Now, that's a tall order. We're not the finished product yet. We haven't arrived. But in Tamworth Elim Church, we aim high. We aim aim high. And the New Testament value of extravagant generosity is our goal with God's help and strength and with his grace. Let's pray together.